Word. So Joshua chapter 8 is uh, what we're looking at tonight. Uh, the first 20, 20, um, 29 verses there. <clears throat> yeah, so if you have a Bible, do um, open that up. Uh, the verses will also be on the screen. Now, um, just at this point in Joshua, Israel have entered the promised land. They've taken over Jericho, which was the first um, city uh, before them in the Promised Land. And uh, after they defeated Jericho, they moved on to Ai, which was a total disaster. We looked at that last week. Why? Because of Achan's sin. Uh, there was sin in the camp. And uh, today we're going to look at um, chapter 8, which is really the mop-up after um, that whole uh, dilemma with Achan and uh, how all of that um, played out. So um, we can call chapter 8 um, AI Take 2 and uh, that's what's going to happen. So let's listen to God's word, uh, Joshua chapter 8. Uh, then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack AI. For I have delivered into your hands the king of AI, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to AI and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully, you are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city and when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say, they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give into it. I will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai, with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions with the main camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them and they fled toward the wilderness. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into, it, into your hand I will deliver this city. So Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. 
the Menevei looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky. But they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing toward the wilderness had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. Those in the ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivor nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Now, I'm sure um, many of you here have um, been, this, uh, been through this before. At some point in your lives, uh, a falling out with someone. And uh, a falling out, it's actually it's a horrible thing to go through. Uh, and usually the way back to restoring that relationship is a very hard and slow process. Um, you might find that it takes months to actually get over the issue that caused that falling out. Uh, you might find that there are uh, many hang-ups, many hurts. Uh, it's hard to, to put, put away the, the, um, the bitter thoughts. And it can be a real struggle. And then one day, maybe after months or even years, it finally dawns on you that actually that person wasn't the one who was in the entire wrong. I'm actually part of the problem. And then with that thought, you start to slowly move towards them and hopefully that relationship can be put back together once again. Do you know God is nothing like that? When it comes to restoring a relationship, God never delays. And that's what we see when we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8 in the book of Joshua. Uh, because in chapter 7, remember, God was angry with his people. He withdrew his presence. They went through that humiliating defeat from a small place called Ai. And uh, it was because God was angry with his people, but for very good reasons, because of the sin of Achan. Well, that sin has been dealt with. And chapter, end, chapter 7 ended with God, uh, God's anger turned away from his people. And with that, now in chapter 8, we see that the relationship is instantly restored. God and his people once, once again working together and uh, we see here with this fresh restart with AI. AI take two. God leading his people into victory. And so in this chapter we actually see that with the people now restored to the Lord and following him, 
that his victory-given presence is there. Victory is guaranteed because God is with his people. God is leading his people into this, this victory. And so this chapter, it's actually a wonderful picture of what it looks like when God's people are trusting in him and following him. It's a beautiful picture of that. And so what I want to do tonight is actually look at uh, what is it that brought that about? What is it that brings about a people who are courageous, who want to serve the Lord and follow him into battle, no matter what is before them? Let's look at that tonight. First, uh, this kind of trust and obedience, it comes from when people, his people embrace God's faithfulness. And we see that in the first two verses especially. Because here God comes to Joshua, he speaks these gracious words to Joshua. He, he says uh, these words of reassurance, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And uh, that's actually not the first time God has said these things to Joshua. Remember at the start of the book of Joshua, Moses was dead. And so Joshua had to step into those massive shoes to fill. And so God came to Joshua and spoke those same words of reassurance. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. But he has good reasons why. Because God said, I am with you. I am with you wherever you go. And God again spoke his promise to Joshua. I will give you this land. You have nothing to fear because I am with you and I will do what I have promised. And so Joshua could rest in God's faithfulness but then Ai happened, chapter 7, where with, with Achan, the, the sin of Achan, and, and it brought that humiliating defeat. It said the whole nation became like water. You know, their hearts melted. And surely Joshua would have been one of those men who, whose heart melted when he saw the Israelite army being humiliated by this little place. 36 men are dead. And, uh, I mean, before that defeat, Israel had the upper hand. You know, they could just walk in there, shout, and city walls would come down because God was with them. But with this defeat by AI, it just seemed like the whole thing was falling apart, that, that they were going to lose, that the Canaanites now had the upper hand, that, that Israel would be wiped out. But then they were able to deal with the, the whole issue that brought all that about with Achan. God's anger was turned away. But you could really imagine everyone in that nation feeling a little bit on edge. You know, maybe the, it felt like there made, might have been tension between them and God over the, the whole way this, this has worked out. And yet here we see in verse 1, God doesn't leave them in any doubt at all. He immediately moves toward them, speaks this word of reassurance, and everything is back on track once again. And so he says to Joshua, let's look at verses 1 to 2. He says, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. So God is saying, I am with you still. Okay? The promise still stands. I'm not going to forsake you. This will happen. And notice, um, if we look at that again, uh, he says, I have delivered the king of Ai into your hands. Again, here's God speaking of a future event as if it's already happened. 
Remember, that's how God spoke to Joshua just before Jericho. And only God can talk like that. Only God can speak of future events as if they've already happened because only he is in complete control. And so here we have God is back in the driver's seat. He's the mighty warrior leading his people into victory. And that's why the people can be strong and courageous. They don't have to fear because God is with them and God is faithful to his promise. And so we can see here the way God lifts his despondent people up is by coming to them and speaking his promise, by reminding them of his presence, reminding that he is faithful to them, that they can indeed trust him. And this is actually very helpful for us to um, stop and think about uh, because it is very easy to lose sight of this reality, especially when we're facing great difficulty or when we're overwhelmed by a whole heap of things uh, that need to be done or perhaps uh, we're in some circumstance where it feels like everything is against us. And it's so easy to lose sight of God's faithfulness, His presence. Uh, maybe some of you here have been a bit overwhelmed by life. You now we've just come out of um, all that lockdown and you know what a horrible year last year was. Uh, it's easy to get overwhelmed by all of that and to feel like uh, our lives are a bit out of control now. Or, you know, at the same time, we've got this shifting culture. So bills are being passed in the upper house. It looks like we're getting squeezed out of society step by step. And we look at all of this and think, you know, what's, what's going to become of our future? How can we go forward? Where are we going to end up? How do you deal with those sort of doubts? How do you get put back together? Where do you get the courage uh, that, that um, God speaks to Joshua here? It's in the very same place that Joshua found it, the faithfulness of God. He will not abandon his people. Uh, do you know, I, I remember um, attending a farewell service um, for a minister about 18 years ago in a little tiny country church in northern Victoria. And uh, it was uh, a, a great little um, meeting. Uh, there were these little old ladies getting up, making speeches, saying how much they appreciated their, their pastor. You know, they were saying that they just loved how he always pointed them to Jesus. And um, the minister was in the corner crying as he was listening to these speeches. Uh, and he was a, a big, tough guy. So it was a little bit weird seeing him crying there. But he pulled himself together and he got up and he made this speech that I'll never forget. He said uh, to everyone, I have great confidence for this church, not because you're big, not because you have lots of money and resources, but I have great confidence because I know that God will never abandon a church that honours and loves his son. And that, that really stuck with me. It still does today. That we're, what, what, is, what is our hope for the future? God is faithful. He will not abandon his people who are in Christ. And that's where we find the courage and the strength to serve him, uh, to serve him faithfully when we embrace that. Um, or perhaps here's another um, way we need to apply this. Uh, maybe you have gone or, or even are going through a rough patch spiritually. You know, something uh, in your life maybe only you know about and it's really shaken you. 
and you think, how, how am I ever going to get to the end and still be a Christian? God is faithful. Be strong and courageous. And, and what is God's promise? He will complete what he starts. That's at the start of Philippians. God will complete what he begins. If you are in Christ, he will bring you to the end. So what, what do you do? You put your confidence in him. Look away from yourself. Put your confidence in him. Uh, now, sometimes, as we've looked at with uh, the last chapter, sometimes God does remove his presence, the, the sense of his presence in our lives for a time, to discipline us like he did with Israel, with the sin of Achan. But this is why I started this service tonight with Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So you don't turn away. You turn to him and you put your trust in his faithfulness. That's where you find the courage. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God is with you and he will not abandon you. The second uh, way that we see uh, God's people stirred up to follow and obey him um, is by resting in God's goodness. So God's faithfulness, God's goodness. And uh, we see that at the end of verse 2. Let's have a look at um, the end of verse 2. Uh, this, um, I don't know if this used to really um, jolt me when I read through Joshua, <laughs> because... Um, God says, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. And uh, then if we look at verse 27 where um, it actually happens, it says, Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and the plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. Now the reason that used to jolt me is because you read chapter 7 and um, you know there was a ban on everything, no one's allowed to touch any of this devoted stuff. Achan sneakily tries to collect some of the stuff and uh, as a result, he's put to death. And then you get to the very next chapter and here God is saying, okay, everyone, go for your life. Free for all. Take whatever you like. And it almost seems like, um, you know, God does a big backflip uh, and, and changes his mind. I mean, what's going on here? Is God just playing with his people? Is this unfair for Achan? And the answer is not at all. No, no, if we actually look at this in the context of uh, the book of Deuteronomy, where, where, which lays out the way all of this was supposed to work, we actually realise that this is not the first time that God has given um, the plunder of an Amorite city to his people. So if you read Deuteronomy um, chapter 2 tonight before you go to sleep, uh, verse 34 and 35, it talks about how they were able to receive um, uh, plunder from the city. So it's already happened before. Uh, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 11, that when he brings them people into the, city, uh, the promised land, he's going to give them houses full of good things that they did not um, fill themselves. And so with that background in mind, when you get to Jericho and there's a ban on everything, you know, all the gold, all the, the um, silver and, and iron and all this stuff is to go into the Lord's treasury we see that that was not the set pattern for everything or for every place. But it was, it was because this Jericho was the first city in the Promised Land 
And therefore, God was setting a priority for the people, that they would recognise that when they cross that Jordan and uh, enter this land with all of these things, that all of this stuff belongs to God. The land belongs to God. Everything in it is God's. It doesn't belong to the people. They haven't earned it through their own efforts. This is all God's, and now he's sharing it with his people. And so that's, that's why with Jericho, it's like God was setting a priority so that all the Israelites would be very clear in their own minds that the land belongs to God. He's now sharing it with us. We're receiving it as a gift, a gift of grace. But beyond that, after Jericho, God is sharing it all with, him, with them. Um, Deuteronomy 6, it says... Uh, God is going to give them great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, um, which is, that'd be handy, um, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Um, God told all, all ahead of time that that's what was going to happen, that when they went into the promised land, all of these good things, he's going to share it with them. He's going to provide so abundantly. And, um, and now with the taking of Ai... They can help themselves to all these goodies. And when you see that, you realise that Achan, you know, the, the, the covetousness and, and him snatching those things in secret, hoping no one knew. You see how needless that was. That was crazy. Why? Because God had told them all ahead of time that he was going to give them all these good things. All that Achan had to do was wait. He's had to wait and, and he would have had far more than he could ever ask or imagine. Because all along God had promised that. And when you look at that, you realise that with Achan, the, the reason his sin was, was so horrendous was not just because he stole from God. It wasn't just because he had those covetous desires. But we see that behind all that is another sin. It's the sin of unbelief. That God had given his promise, Achan refused to believe it and tried to snatch things in his own way and in his own time. And so for the, the real issue with Achan was actually the doubting of the goodness and the generosity of God. And uh, do you know, that, that is something that we can easily see in ourselves. Uh, if, if we were to take a moment to reflect on a struggle that we might have had recently um, or, or something that we've done that displeased God, you will find, if you think about it for a bit, that behind it, behind the sin, behind the desire, is actually the heart of unbelief. That, that the, the, the belief that says, I can't trust God. I need to do things my way. That's what's behind it. And you will find that there because that's the trick that Satan used with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, God put them there, gave them everything they could ever want. And then Satan comes along and he makes that one restriction seem like everything. You know, as if God was holding out, as if God was stingy, as if God couldn't be trusted. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the trick he used on Achan. Uh, but it's definitely the one he uses on us all the time sowing the seeds of doubt, thinking we can't trust God. He's not going to look after me. 
I need to find my own way. I need to put my hope in, in my own efforts or in, in the things of this world. And that's why we turn from him. That's why we get anxious about things and worry because we've let go of the God who is good, who promises to look after us, who is generous and gives us more than we could ever ask. Now, thankfully, we have a saviour who didn't fall for that trick. He never fell for that trick. Otherwise, we'd all be doomed. But we have a saviour who trusted his father uh, to the end. Uh, but we need to embrace the goodness and generosity of our faithful God. How do we know that God will keep looking after us? Because he's good. He's good, he's generous. And we can only serve him without fear and without discouragement when we know that, when we believe that he is good and will look after us and provide what we need. Now, there's a third thing here. Um, so, so far we've got to verse 2, I think. And there's still a few verses to go. Uh, this will be the um, wrap-up. Um, so, the faithfulness of God. We need the faithfulness of God. We need the, the, the goodness of God. The third thing, to serve God faithfully, you know, without fear, with great courage, we need to believe in the justice of God. The justice of God. This is not something we would come up with initially, but it's certainly here in the passage. Uh, this is a recurring theme in Joshua. I think we've talked about it every week so far in Joshua. The justice of God. And that's because the book of Joshua records the conquest. And the conquest, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, was all about God bringing justice upon a people who had continually provoked him to anger, who had continually provoked him with their wickedness. And after 400 years, God has finally brought his justice upon people. And when we see God giving the land, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, when we see God giving the land to the Israelites, um, it wasn't because the Israelites were the good guys and the Canaanites were the bad guys. It's not about that at all. It's not, you know, goodies versus baddies. But rather, we have those who receive mercy, the Israelites, and those who receive justice, the Canaanites. And then God uses the ones who receive mercy as the instruments to bring justice uh, to those, uh, uh, those people who receive justice. So, I just say this because it's all brought out again here. We're, we're reading about AI and, you know, everyone is being killed. And if we don't understand it in the context of, of the conquest, God bringing judgment upon a wicked people who had continually provoked him year after year, uh, then we won't understand what's going on here. But God uses his people to inflict judgment on a wicked nation. And you can see that even in this chapter, in chapter 8, because all the way through, who's leading this battle? Who is the commander in charge? Who's the one giving the directions? And it might look like Joshua, but if you look carefully, it's actually God all the way through. Even in verse 2, God says to set the ambush. God's the one who's giving that plan. And then down in verse 7, um, we see uh, Joshua says that the Lord will give you the city into your hand. All that the people needed to do was what? Obey the word of the Lord. And you see it again in verse 18. Uh, this is where, um, let's have a look at, um, do we have verse 18? Yep. Uh, then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that's in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver this city. 
Uh, so Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position, rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. Now, verse 26 tells us that Joshua did not draw back um, the javelin or the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. Now, does that remind you of anything? You know, a leader of God's people holding out a stick until the whole battle's finished. Remember Moses, uh, what is it, Exodus 17. And uh, Moses is up on that hill holding his staff and his hands get tired and drops down. And as soon as he drops his hands, the Israelites start losing. So he has to have uh, Aaron and um, someone else, um, can't remember who that was, but <laughs> holding his hands up. And while the hands are held up, then Israel win. Now, what was all that about? You know, it's not like this does anything. Um, but the staff, it was called the staff of God. It represented God's presence. And therefore, when Joshua held, uh, Moses held the staff up, that was to show the people that it was God who was fighting for them. And uh, it seems like we have the same thing here. You know, here's Joshua holding out this javelin until it's all done. Again, it's God fighting for the people. This is God doing it. And so the whole battle, it's directed by the Lord it's carried out by the Lord. It's, well, it's carried out in obedience to God's word by the people. And all of it's described like this to show us again that this is God's judgment coming upon an, a wicked nation. And that comes out most clearly at the very end when they take the king of Ai, after he is dead, by the way, and they hang his body on a pole. And uh, that's a gruesome sight. Now, can you imagine that? This dead body hanging up all day until the evening, then they take it down and throw it on the ground and put rocks over it. Now, what's all that about? That comes from Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. Uh, it says that if someone, when someone's put to death for a capital offence in Israel, the body could be hung on a pole, uh, probably to... Um, you know, as a warning to the rest of the community. Uh, and yet Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it says that anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. So it was symbolic. It was to show here is someone who is under God's curse. And so when all of the Israelites looked at the king of Ai, who was the representative of that people, hanging on a pole, what were they all thinking? That person, that people, are under God's curse because of their wickedness. And, you know, as they looked at that gruesome sight, what are they seeing? They're seeing it, again, in this very provocative way, God's hatred of sin. He, he hates it so much. That there's a curse on it, the curse of his judgment. And that was a gruesome sight. And so, surely all of the Israelites are thinking there is no way any of us can treat sin lightly. There's no way any of us can toy with sin, treat it as if it doesn't matter. No, no, when they're looking at that body hanging up there, thinking of God's curse on sin, it's, it's like hits them like a ton of bricks. Never treat sin lightly. There must be a holy hatred of sin if we belong to this holy God. 
And you know, if that's not enough for us, reading it today, to, if that's not enough to strike the fear of God in us, that we would also hate sin and, and want to like, put it off. If that's not enough, then how much more when we see the Lord Jesus hanging on a pole? And anyone looking at Jesus who knows their Bible, what are they going to be thinking? God's curse is on this man. Because that's what the Bible says, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 21, 23. And yet, as we know, Jesus had no sin. So why was God's curse on him, on him? For our sin. And when we see that, we now see how seriously God takes our sin. That in order to forgive us, he would even punish his own son. That's how seriously God takes our sin. He must punish our sin He's found a way to do it without punishing us. But it was a great cost to him, his own son, under his curse for us. That's why Galatians 3 verse 12, let's look at that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now when you see that, when you think about that, what Jesus had to go through, now look at the sin that tempts you. Do you see how rotten it is? How awful and offensive it is? You don't ever want to toy with it. You want to put it off. You want to repent. See, this stirs us up to a holy hatred of sin. And so, you know, when the Israelites saw that body there at Ai, that's what was, what would have stirred them up to that way. And it does it also for us, but in a far more personal way, because we have our Saviour who bore the curse in our place. So we, we don't want to be playing with sin anymore. And do you realise that you also need that in order to serve God faithfully? That we would have the fear of God. That we would have a hatred of sin. And so this chapter, again, it's a wonderful picture. God's people in relationship with Him, trusting Him, obeying Him, doing His will, and seeing the great victory that He brought through them. And why could they do it confidently? Because they knew God was faithful. They knew God was good. They knew God was just, that he hates sin. And do you know these three characteristics about God? We see them so much more clearly in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus. And that's brought out Romans 8, 31, verse 32. This really sums up everything we've learned about God tonight. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What is that communicating? God's faithfulness. Uh, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What is that communicating? God's goodness, his generosity, giving up his own son for us. It's communicating God's justice. He had to do it in order to forgive us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things god's goodness we can trust him and see that's our assurance that's our assurance that god is with us we have it in the in the cross and that's why we can serve god without fear without discouragement now those words to joshua do not be afraid do not be discouraged Whatever the future holds, do not be afraid. 
Do not be discouraged. God is saying, I will give you what I promised. He's proved that in the cross. You can trust him.